Amen, amen. You may be seated this morning. We started last week a study in a new book, 2 Corinthians. So if you'll turn there, chapter 1. We covered the first seven verses. And uh, so if you will turn to chapter 1, we'll start reading at verse 8. Also, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And we want to be able to hand you a Bible. We're going to finish the chapter. And so chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. And verse 8 is where we're going to begin reading this morning. Also, just remember to reach over, turn off cell phones this morning, put them on vibrator, whatever, so we don't hear things that go ring in the, during our time of teaching, and we don't want to be distracted, so we appreciate that. Second Corinthians chapter 1, and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time and, and for the brethren to be together. Your word says it's good, and it is good for us to be here. And, and Lord, to rejoice and to be thankful and to, again, just share with J.D. and, and Sally and, and what they're going through and just expressing our love for them. And, and, and Lord, uh, there is love in this fellowship. And it's because you love us and the love that you put here we're thankful for. And Lord, I pray that as we study this text, that once again we're reminded of your faithfulness and you working in times of trials and difficulties, that we know that, that you are working in very special and very real ways. And so I pray that we would be attentive this morning and, and we would hear your word and, and work it within our hearts and lift us up and edify us and exhort us and teach us this morning, Lord, how we need your word so desperately to touch our hearts and that's what we ask this morning and it's in jesus name that we pray amen so paul as he's writing to the corinthian church once again actually what we know as second corinthians we we talked about this last week as i gave you an introduction and some background to paul's ministry and relationship to the church at corinth but second corinthians is really paul's fourth letter to this church we know that the first letter he wrote to them was lost. The third letter that he wrote to them was lost as well. So at this time, Paul is writing from the region of Macedonia, which is in northern Greece, and he had just received news from Titus that the Corinthian believers were doing better as Paul uh, had written a letter to them that was a painful letter. He had visited them, as we're going to see next week. He expresses that, um, that that visit was very much a hard and difficult visit. So uh, after ministering to them in that way, as we discussed last week, the Corinthian believers were doing better. They were responding to the correction of the apostle in his second letter uh, to them um, as 1 Corinthians, and also the third letter, which we know was a harsh letter that was lost. And so now Paul writing and becoming more personal here to the Corinthians. He's expressing his love for the Christians there in that city. And as I mentioned to you, we covered the first seven verses of this epistle last time, and we saw that and read that after Paul's greeting to them, he begins to talk to them about the comfort of the Lord that comes to us during affliction and difficulties. He is the Father of mercies, and He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulations or in any trouble, and that's good to know. 
Not in most tribulations or some tribulations, but in all our tribulations, in all our difficulties, God is there to comfort us, and we find ourselves receiving that comfort, and then we can comfort others with that same comfort that we receive from the Lord. So we have the ministry to be able to, to bring words of encouragement and consolation and comfort to others because we've been comforted first by the Lord. And so as we look at Paul's life, of course, we know reading from the book of Acts, as we read his letters to the churches, that Paul went through much difficulties and trials and, and tribulations and sufferings. And so we left off at verse 7 with Paul telling us that we will be partakers of the sufferings. So we, all of us, will go through difficult days. We will go through hardships. We will go through trials. And I think that most of us know that. All of us will go through those times and seasons to different degrees. And as we are partakers of the suffering, but you see the scripture also says with that we will also be partakers of his comfort. So God is there to bring comfort to us in our time of need. Now sometimes, particularly uh, when someone first becomes a Christian, they can make the mistake, or, or sometimes they can think, well, now that I'm a child of God, now that I belong to the Lord, everything's going to go great. It's going to be coming up roses every day, and the sun's going to shine, and I won't have any troubles or difficulties. Everything's going to work out, and that's the way it's going to be as a Christian. And there are some that will even teach that's what it should be as you come to Christ, and, and nothing's going to go wrong. And, of course, you do have those who teach that if you do go through hardships or difficulties or sickness, it's because you got a faith problem in your life. And there's just a lot of that kind of heresy concerning that type of teaching in the church today. Jesus said you will have tribulation. Not that you might have tribulation. Not that probably you will have tribulation. Again, we will go through the difficulties because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where there's sickness and there's disease and there's sorrows. And, and we live in a world where the world comes against us, the world system, the enemy comes against us. And so we will have tribulation. But Jesus didn't leave us there. He said, but I have overcome the world. You will have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. And as we know that we will go through those times of difficulties, we can count on it. There is God working in our midst. He will allow our lives sometimes to go through that affliction and tribulation, and he desires to show us and teach us some very wonderful things. And that's what Paul's going to address here in the next few verses. So picking up where we left off again, verse 8 of first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we do read, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. So Paul writing about his own situation, his own trials and afflictions that he went through, he doesn't go into detail what it was. Later on in the book, he's going to talk more specifically about that. But he says that at this time, as he's writing, that things were so bad that he was despaired even of life. I was, I was burdened beyond measure. Now, now Paul was writing this letter right after he had left the city of Ephesus. And we know that even though Paul, on that third missionary journey, that as he was stationed in Ephesus for that length of time that was almost three years, that there was great revival that happened in the city of Ephesus. But also we know that there were some very difficult days there in that city. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, he writes about how he fought with wild beasts in Ephesus. And he doesn't get specific about that. So we don't know if he's talking about fighting with wild beasts literally, thrown to the lions, or that he's referring to certain individuals that were beasts that came against him. We know from Acts chapter 19 that Paul's ministry had such an impact in the city of Ephesus that there was a silversmith. His name was Demetrius. He was very upset at Paul because in Ephesus there was this incredible mighty temple that was there, Artemis. This temple was a magnificent building. It was one of the ancient wonders of the world as far as buildings were concerned. And people would come from all over the the Roman Empire to worship there as well as the people in the city of Ephesus at this temple to worship the goddess Diana. And so as this was taking place, Demetrius and his fellow silversmiths would make these little idols of Diana, and they've excavated some of them. And, you know, and sometimes in, in some of your uh, Bible dictionaries and stuff, they'll have pictures of it. It's a real ugly little idol that they used to make. But people were buying these by the thousands there in Ephesus. And so Paul, bringing the gospel to that city, it had such an impact on the city of Ephesus that people stopped buying the idols. And so those silversmiths were going bankrupt. And so they were determined to get rid of Paul. And so they instigated this this riot against Paul, as you know, as you read the chapter. And lives were threatened, and the city was in turmoil. It was very brutal. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the problems that came to us. We were burdened beyond measure, so much so that we were despaired even of life, of great pain and discouragement. And then he says that God was working, though, in showing me something and showing us something, even in the midst of that difficulty. As he says in verse 9, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. There is a reason why we went through so much trouble. There was lessons that God was showing us that we would learn not to trust in ourselves, but that we would trust in God, that we would look to God and trust in him and depend on him because our tendency that we can have is that when we find ourselves in a hardship, When we find ourselves in difficulties, our tendency can be that we try to pull it out, try to solve it, try to to come up with a plan, all in our own fleshly energies, in our own abilities, in our own strength. And there are times that the Lord will bring us to the end of ourselves, even to where we can feel pressed beyond measure, where we're in despair. Maybe our finances are in big trouble. Circumstances are tough. Relationships are painful. To the point where I know that I just cannot pull it out on my own. That I need to trust in you, Lord. I need to call upon you, God. But our tendency can be that if I can come up with a plan, if I can pull it out somehow, if I can make it better, I'll do it. But God will allow sometimes to find ourselves to where we're in a situation like the children of Israel. We mentioned it last week. You know the story of Exodus chapter 14, where they found themselves between two mountain ranges and their backs to the Red Sea. 
And the Egyptian chariots were getting closer and getting closer and getting closer, and they cried out to God. And sometimes we find ourselves boxed in in a situation where we can't go sideways, we can't go forwards, we can't go back, and it seems like that the chariots of the world are charging at us, ready to run over us, and and there is nothing that we can do in our own flesh, in our own abilities, and God doesn't just put us in that spot, listen, to do us in. So that we can get run over. But rather that he might show himself strong. And to get us to a point of trusting in him and calling out for him. Because God doesn't want us just to depend on our own strength and our own abilities and our own togetherness. So he allows those situations from time to time for us that to go through the difficulties even to the point where we feel like pressed beyond measure so that we would learn to trust in God and rely on Him. We know the story in Genesis of the story of Jacob. Jacob was a real go-getter from the time that he was born, literally. When he was in the womb of his mother, Rebecca, she felt this struggle that was going on inside. And so she went and inquired of the Lord. And, and the Lord said, there's two nations in you, Rebecca. And so she had twins. And the first son came out when she delivered her two sons. And here came the first one. He had hair all over him. So they called him Esau, which means Harry. And that was his name. And then his brother came out and he had a hold of Esau's heel. And Isaac and Rebekah, they, they looked at this, this little guy trying to pull his brother back so he can be born first. And they said, he's sneaky. He, he's that way. So they called him Jacob, which means heel snatcher. It, it takes on the meaning of a conniver, sneaky, and, 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 and one who's tricky. And so this guy, he's trying to pull his brother back so he can be born first, so he can get the advantage. So there is Esau and Jacob, they're born. And as I grew up, Jacob was one that continually just kind of relied on his own abilities. He was crafty, he was clever. He was a guy that was sharp as a tack, always conniving, always scheming somehow, so much so that he ended up getting the birthright and the blessing from his brother Esau. We don't have time to go into how he did that, but again, a lot of you are familiar with the story. And and the birthright and the blessing was to be given to the firstborn. It was to be given to Esau. But they are now Jacob's. And as Jacob was able to pull off those two things, as he would receive the blessing because he deceived his father Isaac, Jacob was just kind of that way. And Esau, when he missed the blessing, he was so upset. He had enough. He was going to kill Jacob. And so Rebekah told Jacob, you better get out of here because your brother Esau, he's coming, come after you. He's going to kill you. And so Jacob would flee. He would leave Canaan and he would go 400 miles to Pandanaran and he would find his uncle Laban. And he ended up doing that as you read Genesis. But Jacob didn't know that his uncle Laban, he was also sneaky. He was also a conniver. He was always planning and plotting and stuff. It was like that Jacob had met his match. And so Jacob would meet Laban's daughter, Rachel. And he fell in love with her. 
And he said, Laban, I want to marry your daughter. And he said, sure, but you're going to have to work for me for seven years. And so Jacob agreed to that. And he thought as that time would pass that he was going to marry Rachel. And the wedding day came and here came the bride, heavily veiled. And they got married and he found out on his wedding night that it wasn't Rachel. It was Leah, Rachel's older sister that was under that veil. And so Jacob, being so upset, he goes to Laban and said, I was supposed to marry Rachel, and it was Leah. And Laban said, oh, is that right? Well, you know, I forgot to tell you that we have a custom here. And the custom here is that the older daughter has to be married first before the younger daughter. So if you want to marry Rachel, you have to work another seven years. So 14 years in totality to get the bride that he wanted. And it seemed like that, that Laban always would have the upper hand. But Jacob, he was also sneaky, and so he was resourceful. And so he had his wives, he had his children, he was able to take a few animals and to build up his flocks and from only a few animals. And there was always this maneuvering, there was always this negotiating. And Laban changed Jacob's wages ten times. And Jacob would, though, find a way to get more flocks. And it was Laban that thought that Jacob was ripping them off. And so this tension was building and conflict was happening. And so they decided to part company. Actually, Jacob said that I'm going to go back home. He had been in Pandanaran for 20 years. So he packed up his belongings and took his wives and his kids and his flocks of animals. And he left. And Laban found out that he had left. And Laban was so angry that he caught up with Jacob and they made a covenant that Jacob would never come back to Pandanaran. And Laban said, if you come back, I'm going to kill you. So Jacob has to Canaan. He's about ready to come to the Jordan River. He's on the east side of the Jordan River and all of a sudden he gets a message. He gets some news that Jacob, there's a greeting party coming to meet you. Really? Yeah, it's your brother Esau. He has 400 men with him. And Genesis chapter 32 tells us that Jacob was greatly afraid. He was in great distress, pressed beyond measure. So he makes his plans. He divided up his family into two, thinking that if Esau gets one half, the other might survive. And he sent his family ahead as they crossed the brook Jabbok. And there is Jacob. He's at the brook. He's all alone. He's trapped. He can't go to Pandanaran. He can't retreat because Laban would kill him. He can't go forward because he's got an angry brother with 400 men coming at him. And Jacob is all alone, and he's wondering. And I'm sure he's pressed beyond measure. And he thought that I'm going to die. And then all of a sudden, Genesis 32 tells us of an interesting story that takes place there is the angel of the Lord snuck up on Jacob, began to wrestle with him. And I believe we see in that chapter, we see what is called a Christophany. It's an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So the Lord snuck up on Jacob and wrestled with him all night. And the Lord said, let me go for the day breaks. And, and Jacob said, I won't let you go till you bless me. Jacob was saying, I need help. I'm tired. I'm out of options. Please don't leave me. And the Lord would touch the hip of Jacob and it popped out. And Jacob, of course, would be in great pain. He's pinned to the ground. And the Lord said to him, what is your name? 
My name? Yeah, what's your name? Now, the Lord knew his name, but he asked this one who was pinned to the ground, his hip out of joint, the one in great pain, the one who now had no more options, that this one had to say, my name is Jacob, the heel snatcher, the deceiver, the manipulator, the conniver, that's me. And the Lord looked at this resourceful, very intelligent, go get him kind of guy and said, now your name's going to be called Israel, which means governed by God. You're no longer going to be the guy who pulls it out in his own energy all the time. But you're going to be governed by me. And Jacob would from that point on walk with the limp and he had to lean on a cane and after wrestling with God and being at the brook Jabbok and the Lord said you are now going to lean on me just as you lean on that cane and you Jacob who walks so proudly and has so much confidence and always planning and manipulating and and trying to do things out of your own energy you're at the end of yourself and now you need to die to self. And you need to hang on to me. And in Jacob's pain and brokenness and weakness, in his limping along, he learned to trust and rely and hang on to the Lord. You shall now be Israel governed by God. You know, his walk was never the same. And it's a great time in our lives when we come to that place when we come to the brook Jabbok and learn as we wrestle and strain and come to that place of pain, it's a great day when we say, Lord, I won't let you go. I need you. I need to lean on you and rely on you. I need to hear from you. I want to be governed by you, Lord. Change my name to Israel. You see, as we talked about on Wednesday as we were in Revelation chapter 14, that we saw the 144,000 going through tribulation. They were sealed by God. They're with the Lamb. And they will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And there can be a tendency for us when we do go through difficulties and we can't pull it out, we don't make plans, that we pull away from the Lord rather than drawing close to the Lord and continuing to trust in Him and read our Bibles and stand on His promises and to be in prayer and to be in fellowship with others. We don't want to have that Jacob mentality. Well, let's just see how resourceful and clever I can be. And we plan and we plot and we connive and all of that. And the Lord wants to bring us to that place of brokenness. Where we realize that our strength is limited. But God will make us strong in our weakness and despair and in our struggles, won't he? In our afflictions. To teach us to lean on him, to surrender to him. And to say that I've realized that I can't do it. Jacob would call that place Peniel, which means I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. And I know that in my own life, I've tried to do things in my own strength at times, in my own abilities. I think that we, a lot of us can have that testimony. We come up with the plans. 
And there's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with having goals. There's nothing wrong with using our minds to, to try to figure things out. But you know what? God will bring us to that place where I've learned in the pain and in the distress to really trust in him and lean on him and to stand on his promises. And for me, and he desires for all of us to be called Israel. Because that's where we need to be. He desires to call all of us Israel. You are governed by God. And when we do that, we discover the power of God and the strength of God and that he works. And we turn to him and trust in him and rely on him. We're not relying just on a book or a program or a procedure. But we're truly relying on him who raises the dead, Paul says. In verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Paul says he has delivered us in the past. He's going to do it presently. I trust and have confidence that he's going to do it in the future. As the weather begins to get warmer and the winds die down, hopefully, I encourage you to go take a walk. Go take a walk and, and, or spend some time anywhere where it's quiet and think about the difficulties and trials that maybe you were experiencing 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 1 year ago. And you thought, it's over. It's not going to work out. I'm not going to make it. I, I can't take it. And yet God delivered you. You saw his faithfulness. And it's interesting how soon we forget about those times unless we really stop and think about the times we thought, I'm going to get wiped out. I'm going to get run over by those chariots. But Lord, 10 years ago, five years ago, last month, you saw me through. And here I am today. And I saw your faithfulness. And I think that big problem can come in our spiritual pilgrimage or our journey is that we forget about the faithfulness of the Lord working in our lives. How indeed he does work in our lives. How he has shown himself strong to us. How he's delivered us. And we get ourselves in another difficult situation or trial or, or circumstances and we think, oh Lord, I'm through, it's over. I'm going to be defeated on this one. And we've forgotten how faithful that he has been to us in the past. And Paul says, look, he has delivered us, he does deliver us, and we have confidence that he will deliver us in the future difficulties that we face. And another help, Paul mentions here, verse 11. And you also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. So Paul coveted their prayers at Corinth. Paul knew that he couldn't do his ministry in the flesh. He wasn't strong enough to go through the things that he did. He needed their prayers. He would write to the Philippian believers, for I know that this still turns out for my deliverance through your prayers and provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. He was saying in that, with your prayers and with God working, his strength, I can press on. And it's true for us. That's why prayer is so important. That's why J.D. expressed he, he coveted our prayers for him and Sally in the past. And, and yesterday, nearly 200 ladies praying for Sally while she was in surgery. And he covets your prayers today. I covet your prayers. As I minister, we are to be ones praying for one another. It's so important that we do that. That we be a family of God that is lifting each other up and praying for one another. And praying for those that you know are in difficult situations. That's why that the prayer chain is so important. 
when they go through, that you stop and you pray and you continue to pray, that this be a church that we continue to do that. It brings great comfort, and God is working in, in marvelous ways. Paul continues here in verse 12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. So Paul ministered in simplicity, and he also ministered with great integrity. He was the same man out of the pulpit as he was behind the pulpit. He was consistent in the way that he lived. He lived in godly sincerity and honesty. Now, the word sincere literally means without wax. You say, what do you mean by that? You see, in Paul's day, there were the artists, and they would make statues and, and uh, cut out of marble. Uh, they would make these beautiful statues, and sometimes artists would slip with the chisel, and they would make a mistake. Well, the artists of that day, they started to become very clever, and they learned how to take wax, and they would mix it with the marble, and they would patch up the mistake that they would make, and you couldn't tell. So you would buy this statue, it was very beautiful, look great, and, and you'd take it home, and maybe in the summertime on a very hot day, or maybe if you put that statue by the fire, you would walk into your family room, look at this expensive statue, it looks so beautiful, and you would notice, hey, the nose is kind of melting there. Because it was patched with wax, mixed with the marble. And then the wax would be running down the statue's face. And so the word sincerity, no wax. We're not deceitful is what he's saying. We weren't tricking you. We're, we weren't fakes. Even in the hot times, we ministered with great integrity and sincerity and simplicity. I know that you get tired of ministries where people are, are manipulated. Ministry and those who like to play on people's emotions, claiming to be more than what they are, claiming to have knowledge that they do not have, passing themselves off as super apostles and prophets, claiming to have esoteric knowledge. Paul's going to address that in this letter. Hey, we know things that nobody else knows, only us. And Paul says that's not the way that we were with you. We ministered with simplicity. We were real. In verse 13, we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now, I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boasts as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul says, there was no double meaning in what I was saying to you. There's no hidden meanings in the teachings or the writings I gave to you. It's real simple what we were saying or writing, that there was no secondary meaning or secret meaning. I'm giving you simple truth. I mean what I say and I say what I mean. I have sincerity of heart. We live simply. We sh are sharing all that we know so that you can do better in the Lord. In verse 15, And in this confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. So it was my intention to come back to you, Corinthian Christians. Now we discussed last week that Paul would make a journey from Ephesus, passing through Macedonia. He went and visited the Corinthian church, and he had intended to do that again, a second trip, passing through Macedonia. His heart was to see them a second time, a second benefit or blessing. Eventually he would do that, but he wasn't able to do that at this time. 
His plans had changed. And so there were those who were very skeptical and cynical about Paul here. They, they were saying he can't be trusted. He said that he would be here. He didn't show up. And Paul is going to say, that was my intention, but it didn't work out in that way at this time. So he says, verse 17, Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? Was I thinking about this lightly, the things that I purpose? Do I, I purpose just in the flesh? Am I just giving promises with no intentions of keeping those promises? Am I just trying to get you hyped up? To get your hopes up and not produce? He says, no, not at all. But verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. I really was intending to come if it was the Lord's will. I wasn't playing the politician. I wasn't being fickle. He was being criticized as someone who couldn't decide on a plan, who couldn't carry through on a plan. And remember, there are those that were in Corinth that were constantly challenging Paul's authority and apostleship. They looked for any opportunity to make Paul look bad. And Paul says, as God is faithful, so we were faithful in what we said to you. He explains, I wasn't saying yes and meaning no, and saying no and meaning yes. I wasn't speaking out of both sides of my mouth. In verse 18, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. Paul, now using this opportunity, he's pointing those that he's writing to back to Jesus. Hey, our word was true to you. And the gospel we preached to you was a positive gospel. It's a true message. It was straightforward. It wasn't a two-faced thing. Paul preached to Jesus who is completely reliable and worthy of trust. And verse 20, for all the promises of God in him or yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us all the promises of God to us have been fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus is the assurance to us that God's promises are all true all the promises of God to you are wrapped up in Christ remember that God has promised to give you life that life comes through Jesus Christ God has promised to give you peace that peace comes through having a relationship with Jesus Christ God has promised mercies to you, but those mercies are coming to you in Jesus. All the promises in him are yes and are fulfilled in him to us. And the fact that God sent his son is the assurance to us that God is going to keep all of his word and all of his promises that he has made to us. We're forgiven. We're heaven bound. We have a relationship with the Father. Jesus is the affirmation to you and to me that God has meant what he said and that he will keep all the promises that he has made. As believers, we need to keep in mind that all that we are enjoying is because of Jesus. And Paul, finishing up his explanation of why he wrote this letter, instead of coming personally, verse 21, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. What we are doing is commissioned by God. He has anointed our lives. The idea of anointing here is that we are prepared and empowered for service. Now, that word anointing can kind of take on different meanings in certain charismatic circles today. Hey, they have the anointing. That, that brother, that, that ministry has the special anointing. And it's interesting that this word anoint, this is the first time that it shows up in the New Testament. We never hear of a 
believer's anointing until 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And then you don't hear about it again until the book of 1 John, where the apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And then in verse 27 of chapter 2, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. So John telling us, and we need to remember this, that all believers have been anointed for service. There's no special anointing where those who say, oh, this brother's got a special anointing. So if you want the anointing, you have to go to that place or go to that person and receive the anointing. And then you can bring it back. There have been those who have been caught up in that. Oh, go to the so-and-so and get that anointing and get it from that brother. Then you can bring it back. And people have been caught up in that. You have the anointing, or let's go here. And it's coming from hyper-spiritual people who want to have spiritual leverage over you. I have the anointing and you don't. My church has special anointing and yours doesn't. Paul says, hey, we are anointed by the Lord by the Holy One, by Him, to carry out our ministry. He has prepared us and empowered us. In verse 22, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. J.D. was talking about this, wasn't he? Being sealed by the Holy Spirit. God has anointed us. He has sealed us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. As Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 1, the word seal here in the Greek has the idea of earnest or deposit or down payment. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Again, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. God has purchased you and me that we might be His forever, that you and I might share in the glory of His eternal kingdom to show you that He is sincere, honest. He has given you a down payment. God saying, I intend to complete my redemption of you to show you that I am sincere. I'll give you a deposit, a down payment, the Holy Spirit. I'll seal you with the Holy Spirit. And the idea of being sealed was it was a stamp of ownership. Merchants in Paul's day would put their seal on, in wax on cargo to show that they owned it. So we are sealed to identify us and to protect us. God says, here's the down payment, and one day I'm going to bring you home. But in the meantime, here's the Holy Spirit. You are sealed. People will see that you belong to me, that we are his possession, that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That the moment that we give our hearts to him, we have been purchased and redeemed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ paid the price with his own blood. He said on the cross, it is finished. And so when we are born again, he gave you the Holy Spirit as a pledge of your inheritance. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit, saying, this one is mine. Now, if you're not a Christian, if anyone is here or listening to this message, then you're owned by sin. Because Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Verse 23, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. So Paul kind of getting back to his explanation of why he didn't make that second trip to Corinth. And he takes a solemn oath. Paul here staked his life on the truthfulness of his explanation. We know from Matthew chapter 5, of course, Jesus said that we ought to live our lives in a way that oaths and vows are not necessary, but it does not mean that they're prohibited. Those of you who got married, you exchanged vows, didn't you? You give an oath if you give a testimony in a court of law or legal proceeding. 
Those of you who perhaps join the military or, or peace officers, you, you have an oath that you take for what it is that you're going to do and being in the military and defending the Constitution. And so here Paul is just doing this to show the strength of his declaration here. Listen, God is my witness. The reason I didn't see you was to spare you because there were those in Corinth that were saying, hey, you didn't come because of selfish reasons, Paul. You're not a man of integrity. Paul says, I've lived my life in integrity and done my ministry with integrity. And the reason I didn't come was to spare you, even though you guys probably need some correcting. I was concerned for you, being patient with you. I wanted to get the story from Titus to see how you were doing. It was concern for you Corinthian Christians that I didn't make that visit at this particular time. In verse 24, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Paul had great authority in the church. Paul knew that the Corinthian church had problems. That there were those who were questioning Paul's ministry, his integrity, his authority as an apostle. But Paul didn't have the attitude of, well, I'm just going to show you, and you guys need to realize that I'm the head guy here. He didn't want to take dominion over the church and the people. You better do what I do and tell you to do. You better come to me before you make any decisions. And there have been groups throughout church history and even recently, some, you know, they want to have some ministers or ministries, they want to have dominion over people. I'll tell you what job you have to take and who you can marry and all of that. And people's lives have really been damaged by that spiritually. There's a movement that was called not long ago the shepherding doctrine that people got caught up into. I remember when I first became a Christian hearing about it. You had to go to the elder and the elder will tell you what you could or couldn't do. And that's always been some in the church that have done that. When we read Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus, he commended them. He says that you have, have hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, Jesus says. The word nico means to rule. Laetan, laity, people. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was to rule over the people. He says, Jesus, I hate that doctrine. Because he desires for you to come to him and to come to him freely. Sometimes people will say to me as a pastor, you need to tell them to do this. and I'm going to give you the word of God. And I'm going to give it with honesty and with integrity. I'm not going to hold back. That's one of the things that was a blessing about having Leslie Ludy here and, and Eric Ludy, as he spoke as well, so they were speaking truth from the Word of God. And sometimes the Word of God, when we speak it, it doesn't appeal to the flesh. It doesn't, you know, doesn't um, satisfy the flesh. Sometimes it's hard to hear the truth of God's Word. But God's Word, we are to take it and be teachable and have it in our hearts because He loves us and He wants us to do well and He wants us to live that abundant life that He has for us. And it's amazing. They were telling us that some of the places that they go to, that, that people will come and say, you need to tone it down. You need to, you know, be more soft and you need to lay back and... Don't like what you're hearing. The whole theme was live for the Lord and make Him the priority of your life. And I can't understand why any ministers would want any other message than to trust in the Lord and live after His Word and stand on His promises and be surrendered to Him. 
especially in the day in which we're living in. I'm not here to rule over you, to be helpers of your joy. And you will experience great joy as you just look to the Lord, make Him the priority of your life, and trust in Him. And when you go through the difficulties, to know that He is working, to teach you to be called Israel, governed by me. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this message, and we thank you for this morning. And Lord, I thank you for your love for us. That is so wonderful. That was proved to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that wonderful gospel message that we can experience life. Lord, I pray that this morning anyone here in the coffee shop has not responded to the gospel or listening to the radio program. That if you never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, He died for you. That you've been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. He went to the cross to die for your sins. And that we can become that child of God. You can, as you just receive him by faith. It's a free gift. Even though he redeemed you and purchased you with his blood, the free gift of salvation is available to you. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. It comes by grace, the unmerited favor of God through faith. As you come and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead. As you confess that, that as he knocks on the door of your heart, that you let him in and realize that you are a sinner. That you are a sinner that needs to be saved by the only one that can save you, and that is Jesus. The only one who died for your sins, the only one who rose from the grave, none other. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. You open up your heart to Jesus this morning. And you pray, Jesus, I come to you humbly and sincerely to ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died for my sins on that cross. You died for every one of my sins. Forgive me. And I believe that you are Lord because you rose from the grave. So be my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for giving me life and redeeming me with your precious blood. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. If anybody prayed that prayer, you're a child of God. You belong to him. And I want to encourage you, just as I encourage all of us, to continue to trust in Him. Because if you can trust in Him with your salvation, we can trust in Him with our lives, no matter what it is that we're going through. And so, Lord, we see you working and bringing us to that place of surrender. To bring us to that place of trust. To be governed by you. Not to always pull things out of our own plans and maneuvering. Yes, Lord. You, you've given us talents and you've given us intelligence 
and we do work and we plan, but Lord, when it comes to our lives and the spiritual matters, when it comes to direction and wisdom, we want to depend on you, not just on ourselves. But Lord, we want to look to you. And Lord, may we come to that place of whatever season that we're in, whether it's good times or whether it's difficult times, that we look to you each and every day to walk with you. So Lord, I thank you for that important reminder. I thank you for this time we've had together this morning. I pray that you just bless us as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?